Could psychedelics be the bridge between science and spirituality? We'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog Magnificent Show? Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. We're going to talk about DMT today. If you don't know what DMT is, you probably never listened to the Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, I only found out about DMT. It's uh, also known as dimethyltryptamine. I hope I pronounced that correctly. It's a hallucinogen, uh, psychedelic. I'm not sure if it's... Um, Clinically classified as a drug because it's a natural occurring substance in the human body. I don't think uh, it can be a drug and and be something that is uh, naturally occurring within the human body. But my guest today is uh, the authority on the subject. He is the, the man who is responsible for uh, at least Joe Rogan finding out about it. And that's how I found out about it. Quickly, uh, I just want to say here, we are not glorifying drug use. I have talked a lot about my drug use in my teen years. Uh, and I had some heavy uh, experimentation with psychedelics, hallucinogens, whatever you want to call them uh, in the 70s, in my teenage years, stopped when I became an adult. Um, until like 10 years later, when somebody slipped me some LSD at a Stevie Ray Vaughan concert in 1988. That's the last time I did it. Before then, probably around 78, uh, 1977. When I became interested in DMT, more so for the uh, spiritual aspect of the experience that so many people who have done it uh, claim. And it's kind of like the UFO thing where enough people come back with the same exact story of their experience that it tends to lend some credibility to it. I'm extremely uh, interested in um, spirituality and this whole idea of uh, a pathway to uh, greater understanding through uh, what we call the pineal gland. Uh, it used to be called the psyche guy when I was part of uh, a cult in the 1990s, uh, where uh, a lot of psychics uh, and healers would talk about this uh, strange gland that sits in the middle of our brains behind the behind the bridge of the nose right here. And they called the psyche guy, the psyche guy. Uh, and so I became intrigued with that idea of what what's really going on back there. My guest today seems to know more than anybody in the world about this. And I'm going to uh, make this a really short thing. Um, here we go. <laughs> Dr. Rick, Rick Strassman is a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. He has had, held a fellowship at the Clinical Psychopharmacology Research at the uh, University of California, San Diego, and was professor of psychiatry for 11 years at the University of New Mexico. He was the first person in the United States to undertake uh, human research with psychedelic hallucinogen, hallucinogen, hallucinogenic can I say that? Substances with his research in NN dimethyltryptamine, also known as DMT. He is also the author of The Spirit Mo Molecule, uh, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which summarizes his research into DMT and a, uh, a couple of other books. But the one I've read recently is called Joseph Levy Escapes Death, 
seems to be a bit autobiographical. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Dr. Richard Strassman to the Mind Love TV podcast. Dr. Strassman, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. As uh, you, you heard me mention in the um, in the intro here, I'm confused. Is DMT a drug or is uh, is it classified as a drug? Um, well, it just depends on what you want to call it on any particular day or any particular context. Um, <laughs> if, if it's being used on the street for recreational purposes, I guess you'd call it a drug. Um, and if you're looking at it from the point of view of being produced endogenously in the human body, you could call it a substance or a compound. Okay. I, I, I'm just interested. Do you, do you think, uh, it, does the government uh, classify it as a drug? So it, basically, uh, <laughs> it, it's a controlled substance, and in, in if you bought it on, on the street, you'd be arrested for it? Yeah, it's a Schedule One drug, uh, okay. according to the DEA. Okay. Uh, what fascinates me about about you and the book, and I, I'm pronouncing it Levy now, all my life, I'm a New Yorker, and, and I've had plenty of friends who had that last name, and I always called them Levy or Levy because that's what they call themselves. Never heard it pronounced as Levy until I, I, I listened to the audio book. Uh, right. And I was like, that's how you pronounce that? I, in New York, we pronounce that wrong. Um, what I'm fascinated by is the idea of First of all, a scientist, a medical professional who uh, also has an interest in spirituality and the Judeo God. Uh, and, and so I, I'm, that, that interests me about you. When I've talked to my uh, bass player in my band who was Jewish but also identifies as an atheist, and we've had long conversations about what it really means to be a Jew and, and, and the, the belief in, in the God that we call, and I don't use the word Judeo-Christian because I don't, I don't I like to separate because the, the belief systems are different, but that one God that both of those religions seem to believe in, uh, that seems to be a contradiction for science, a scientist to be going down that path. Uh, tell me about your interest in spirituality and religion. Um, well, I started my you know, psychedelic research career uh, with spiritual questions in a way. I was looking for the biological bases of spiritual experience. Um, and I believed if you could find you know, something going on in the brain uh, that um, was occurring. Well, you know, let me backtrack a bit. Um, when I was in college, I was impressed with the similarities and descriptions uh, between the psychedelic drug state and that resulting from certain kinds of meditation. So I thought there must be some common biological denominator, uh, which was being activated or turned on as a result of either taking psychedelics or doing certain kinds of meditation. So I started looking for, you know, for what I suppose could be called a spirit molecule even back then. You know, was there a part of the brain or a you know, substance released? Uh, that, uh, you know, was comparable to, uh, you know, the effects of, of uh, uh, well, which would stimulate, you know, the common experience that people described either on you know, psychedelics or through meditation. Um, and as you mentioned in the introduction, I began you know, looking uh, at the pineal gland uh, you know, because there was some evidence 
you know, back then, uh, the melatonin, which is the main you know, hormonal uh, you know, product of the pineal, was psychoactive. You know, this was you know, back in the 1970s, 1980s. Um, and also the pineal gland uh, has a you know, long, illustrious uh, history in, um, in, in esoteric you know, psycho-spiritualities. Um, you know, like um, you know, the Sefi wrote of you know, Kabbalah, you know, the you know, Keter, the, you know, the crown, is, uh, um, corresponds to the anatomical location of the pineal. Um, the uh, you know thousand-petaled lotus uh, of you know Hindu uh, you know, physiology or uh, you know, chakra systems um, is also anatomically located there. Um, you know, so I started off my studies you know looking at melatonin uh, in the 1980s, but it was only uh, you know sedating. I mean, it wasn't psychedelic at all. And you know, by then I started to learn about DMT, worked on the you know, protocol and uh, began my studies in uh, you know, 1990. Um, you know, so my question other than, you know, can you get this kind of research off the ground again after 20 years? You know, you know my uh, unspoken, but more uh, you know, near and dear uh, you know, question you know, was uh, if, you know, DMT is a spirit molecule in and of itself, um, if you just give DMT without um, much in terms of um, you know, prepar you know, preparation, you know, setting up expectations, um, you know, would it induce a spiritual experience? And the spiritual experience that I was you know, mostly uh, interested, in, interested in at the time um, was that of uh, enlightenment, you know, Buddhist enlightenment, especially, you know, Zen and the Kensho experience, you know, which is a unitive mystical kind of state that there's no self, there's no time, there's no space, there's no ideas, there's no images, there's no feelings. It's completely empty. Um, and I was, you know, wondering if I gave enough, you know, DMT to, you know, people in an unstructured, you know, but supportive environment, is the pharmacology of the drug in and of itself spiritual? And, um, you know, so there were a couple answers, uh, you know, to that question. Uh, the you know, first answer is on that DMT isn't inherently spiritual. It is a, a you know, psychedelic, uh, you know, drug, um, you know, rather, uh, um, you know, rather than um, an entheogenic drug. Um, it is only able to work on what's already there in your mind, more or less uh, 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 consciously. Uh, you know, so for example, you know, the one uh, you know near-death experience in our group of volunteers occurred in a nurse with a long-standing interest in the near-death experience. You know, she had been uh, you know, studying it, uh, you know, reading, uh, you know, books about the NDE and, you know, volunteered to be in the study because of her belief that, you know, DMT could you know, mediate certain aspects of the near-death state. And, well, so her experience, you know, was, you know, the closest, uh, you know, to the, um, you know, to the classical near-death experience of any of our volunteers. Um, you know, there was a you know, software designer 
um, who you know saw you know the origins of ones and zeros. You know, there's an urban shaman, you know, who was you know dismembered and then you know brought back together um, in a shamanic experience. Um, you know, the one you know mystical unitive kind of Kensho state um, occurred only in one volunteer, and you know this was an individual with a long-standing interest in Kensho in the Enlightenment experience, and he'd been studying and you know, practicing and you know, volunteered to have that kind of experience, and he did. You know, so, you know, uh, it you know, turned out that, you know, DMT um, isn't inherently spiritual, you know, but it is, uh, you know, psychedelic. It's mind manifesting or, you know, mind disclosing. It um, stimulates, amplifies, makes more true, you know, things which already um, were existent in your mind, uh, you know, more or less consciously, uh, you know, potential, uh, you know, which is being actualized. Yeah, so the other question, or the other answer, um, is that, um, you know, the DMT state, you know, wasn't anything like an enlightenment experience. It was not empty. It was, you know, full of stuff. Uh, uh, you retained your personality. Um, there was, you know, the passage of time. There's the experience of space. Uh, there were all, you know, kinds of, you know, visual imagery. Um, you know, there were beings with which the volunteers interacted, uh, all kinds of uh, you know, feelings, ideas, things like that. You know, personality was able to observe carefully and report back. Uh, you know, so the experience, uh, you know, wasn't at all like um, the enlightenment experience of emptiness. You know, so once I completed my study, oh, I, I mean, also, you know, there was an overwhelming you know, feeling of the state. Uh, I'm allowing the experience of a reality more real than this one. You know, that was a you know compelling and quite you know, frequent uh, report of the volunteers. You know, so after the studies, uh, you know, wrapped up, I started you know to look. Um, for other spiritual models, which might be more consistent uh, with the kinds of effects uh, of my volunteers, uh, you know, responding to DMT. Um, and so I was raised, uh, you know, conservative Jewish. Uh, I, uh, you know, went through an extremely long, uh, you know, 20 uh, you know, plus year detour through Zen Buddhism. And after a while, um, you know, the Zen, you know, model, the Zen beliefs, you know, the practice, you know, began kind of wearing thin, well, you know, um, you know, the bowing, I was, you know, wondering about all the bowing to statues and the you know, yeah. pictures of, you know, former teachers and things, you know, to each other. You know, it was explained to me, well, you're bowing, you know, to the pure essence of each other in the you know, process. But, but, but still, um, I thought, you know, if you're going to bow, you know, why not bow to the most high as opposed to just this big golden statue of a Buddha? Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, also, you know, the whole idea of, you know, Buddhism, you know, not having a God, you know, I'm Jewish, uh, you know, you know, even genetically. And, uh, you know, the you know, constant you know, discussion that there is no God, it's only karma uh, started to wear kind of thin as well. 
And I you know, began asking uh, you know, questions which in Buddhism are called not conducive to enlightenment. Uh, you know, for example, you know, what occurred you know, before cause and effect? If, it, you know, um, if everything, you know, if, you know, cause and effect, um, you know, ter- uh, determines everything, you know, what determines cause and effect? You know, so, you know, that in a way is a question about what occurred before the Big Bang. Right. Uh, you know, what is God? Is, you know, God, you know, temporal or um, or not? You know, so... You know, those, you know, kinds um, of questions were discouraged in the more, you know, practical approach. But still, you know, there were some strange things uh, which we were expected to assume or, you know, to believe and, uh, you know, to do, uh, you know, within uh, Zen practice. You know, the other was, um, you know, karma is supposed to be, you know, neutral. Uh, it's just you know, kind of, uh, it started somehow, and then every effect has got antecedent causes. You know, but I started, you know, to wonder um, as well, you know, why are things, you know, the way they are? You know, why are, you know, why are, uh, you know, certain ideas and, you know, behaviors rewarded and others, you know, seem to be punished? You know, like if you're angry, you get an upset stomach. Right. You know, as opposed to if you get angry, you know, why don't you make a million dollars or you grow a pair of wings? You know, so, you know, things are a specific way in existence. And so I began, you know, thinking, you know, that karma seems to reflect, you know, the will and the power of you know some overarching intelligence, you know, which has got a scheme which is supposed you know to benefit us as opposed you know to harming us. You know, so, you know, combined with, you know, those, you know, kinds of ruminations, you know, looking, you know, for another model of spirituality as revealed, you know, through the DMT effect, I started reading the Hebrew Bible, ended up, you know, being convinced of a prophetic state of consciousness, which pervades the text, which is quite DMT-like. Uh, but at you know, the same time, it's you know, quite different because of the information contained in the Bible as compared to, you know, contained in the DMT experience. So, you know, one of the things you've got to work through in the text is the existence of God. Like the first word or the second word in the in you know, the Bible is in the beginning, you know, God created heaven and earth. It's like, who's God? What's God? You know, how does that work? Yeah, chicken and uh, egg. <laughs> right, right. So I spent years, you know, just you know, be uh, you know, beating my head against the wall. You know, what is you know this God? And I started to you know read you know, the medieval you know philosophers, you know, who are, are you know quite sophisticated. You know, back in you know the day, you know, nine hundred to you know fourteen hundred uh, in the Common Era. Yeah, and um, you know, gradually, you know, you know, slowly, you know, but surely, I began to, you know, believe in God, uh, you know, want to understand, you know, God's characteristics and uh, interaction, you know, with the world. You know, my first, you know, toeholds uh, for um, accepting, you know, the notion of God, it came through Buddhism, actually. And it was around, um, you know, those two issues um, of karma. Um, you know, who created and, you know, who sustains karma? And what's going to exist once karma is you know, done, as everything else is done, according to the law of karma. Uh, 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 I mean, also, 
you know, why, you know, does karma you know, seem to operate in a, in a particular manner? Right. You know, so those you know, were the two you know, footholds which allowed me to start thinking, oh, you know, it you know, must be God you know, who created and sustains cause and effect, which works in a in particular way, which, uh, you know, reflects, uh, you know, so to speak, the mind of God. Well, that's so so interesting. Now, uh, there's a lot to, to reflect on in that answer. First of all, the idea of similarities between NDEs and, and the DMT experience, I think one of the differences that I've noticed with that is, because I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, uh, found God through NDEs, and atheists will convert after many times an atheist will convert uh to a somewhat of a believer in something bigger and higher than ourselves after an nd nd but i know a lot of atheists who have had the dmt experience and remain atheists but also atheists in a very judgmental way in that well if you believe in god you must be an idiot if you believe this uh, and and especially you mentioned the bible they'll they'll bring that up like how how could any reasonable person uh take the stories in, in there to be literal truth and i think that's where we we get into a problem with this idea of uh the old man in the sky uh god do you do, how do you address that because i don't think anywhere in the bible it actually says like old man in the sky but that's that's the atheist view of of mm-hmm. what what the belief is how do you uh, how do you address that or you don't address it <laughs> yeah you've got to address it um and uh it's kind of you know like a dmt experience you need to suspend disbelief um in uh, i'm in order uh, you know, to get the most out of what you're, you know, perceiving or reading or apprehending. Um, you know, in the beginning of my DMT studies, I was pretty skeptical of you know, the reality, uh, you know, bases of people's experiences. Uh, you know, like, you know, when they were telling me uh, about these, uh, you know, being encounters, you know, these, you know, critters or bees or robots or you know, cactuses, you know, doing things and interacting with people. I thought to myself, well, it's your brain on drugs or, it's, you know, Freudian impulses or conflicts, you know, being you know, represented visually and emotionally. Uh, it's some kind of uh, Jungian archetype, um, you know, but it was anything, you know, um, but real. And, uh, you know, my skepticism, even though I was keeping it to myself, still kind of leaked out. And the volunteers weren't as comfortable describing the stranger you know, parts of their experiences. Um, and, uh, you know, I picked up on that and then started to, you know, treat the experiences uh, to, you know, be as real as the volunteers you know, believe they were. You know, like, you know, the state is quite, you know, common or it's, uh, you know, cons- it's, you know, consistent. Uh, it's, it, it's, you know, visual, it's out of body, um, it's, you know, rapidly, uh, you know, changing. There's beings, you interact with them. Um, you're a little bit confused, a bit anxious early on, but, you know, then it just completely opens up. You know, so I thought, well, okay. You know, these, you know, this, you know, drug, you know, this compound seems to, 
allow you know, people to, you know, to enter into a freestanding, completely consistent, independent universe from this one, which is more real than real. Wow. So, you know, when you start reading the Bible, you have to do the same thing. You've got to say to yourself, okay, you know, this is describing a universe, a particular uh, you know, world, which is more real than real for those who are in those narratives. Um, you, you know, if you read about your know, prophecy, you know, like Ezekiel, you know, for example, uh, you know, he just, you know, falls down because of the intensity of the visions. And it's the most you know, real overpowering thing that's ever occurred to him in his life. You know, so you can say, oh, that's just crazy. That's just schizophrenia, you know, but you need, you know, to, um, you know, I guess, you know, suspend your disbelief. You could study the text, you know, carefully, you, uh, you know, learn about, you know, the character, you know, who is Ezekiel. Um, and uh, you could enter into his mind and, you know, see what's going on there. You know, what's he saying and why and you know, what are the implications back then? you know, nowadays, uh, you know, the story of Abraham, you know, the first, uh, you know, the first Jew, you know, Abraham is, you know, living in a, you know, you know, like an idol um, infested in Babylonia. And he gets a you know, call from God to go to Canaan and to, you know, worship the one God, you know, so, you know, who is Abraham, you know, is, you know, like, are there you know, qualities of Abraham in me? Um, you know, who, were his parents, his wife, his kids, his travels, his you know servant, his maid servant Ishmael and Isaac, you know. So it's this it's this freestanding universe, um, and you could say, oh, it's just a bunch of you know hooey and it promotes you know genocide and the chosen people and all that. You could just say, okay, that's fine, but what does the text actually say? Right. And your friends um, who say. Oh, you know, the Bible is just, you know, BS. You can ask them if, you know, if they've ever read the Bible and if they have, if, you know, if they've ever studied it. Yeah. Know, like, you know, most of at, the time, most of the time, the answer will be uh, very uh, surface level reading. So, and, <laughs> and they will go right to the easiest uh, um, parts of it. Like Noah, there's no way Noah could have had two of every uh, species on, on the earth on the, on the, and that kind of stuff. So I think they have, it probably have not read it, but have heard the stories enough to believe they have read it. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, you cherry pick. Well, yeah, right. Well, it's, um, you know, kind of like the story or, you know, that, you know, saying, you know, first there is a mountain, you know, then there is no mountain, then there is, you know, the first time you read the Bible, it's, you know, literal, and it's just like, you know, crazy. And, you know, then it's nothing like it's just, you know, nonsense. And, and, you know, then once you've begun to study it in earnest, you can start, you know, to glean the gems of information, which are embedded in the narratives in the poetry, in the wisdom, in, uh, you know, the legal code. Right. Uh, part of the NDE experience seems to be uh, preconditioned. Uh, in other words, if, if uh, you know, the whole idea, uh, if you're, you 
committed suicide or tried to commit suicide and, and had the NDE. Uh, you have visions of the hell or, or, you know, a very dark experience. And uh, if you, you know, whatever, died in an accident or you sleep, whatever the, you know, uh, the non-suicidal way that you might have passed, you tend to have a more heavenly type experience. Are there people who in DMT who have that, uh, in DMT experimentation that have had that dark experience, the hell experience, where the beings don't seem to be uh, friendly beings, but uh, judgmental beings? Well, I'm not sure if I would call them judgmental, you, you, you know, but at least aggressive. Uh, and you know, hostile and right. even harmful I mean, in a way. Uh, you know, one of our you know, volunteers was a young guy, uh, you know, tie dye, you know, long hair, you know, hippie dude. Uh, you know, loved MDMA, had uh, you know taken small doses of you know, mushrooms in the past, and was completely into the love and light, you know, delusion as it were. Um, he it was you know hard for him to you know face his own you know darkness. You know, so on his first, uh, you know, uh, large, uh, you know, dose of DMT, uh, he was raped anally by crocodiles who pinned him to the bed. Oh, and he and he, he he couldn't move. He was paralyzed. He couldn't speak. He couldn't ask for help. And you know, the first few minutes of a DMT experience, I'm just you know, kind of, uh, you know, crossing my you know, my fingers together and you're know, praying it's going to go all right. And I had no idea what was going on with him. And, uh, you know, at about the you know, 20 minute point, he opened up his eyes and said, that was the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Wow. Um, you, you know, so that was, you know, one experience like that. You know, some other guy came in um, after having a big, you know, pizza and your know, beer dinner the night before because he figured DMT, I could handle that. Um, yeah, and he was a bit hungover, a bit full still from all that pizza. And uh, his DMT experience was rather frightening as well. This black, you know, warrior with a shield and a spear just appeared right in front of him and said, you dare enter here? You know, so it would you know, depend on your state of mind, your personality, your approach, you know, going into the study. Uh, you would need to be you know, psychologically uh, you know, healthy and mature, uh, you're ready, you know, mentally, uh, you know, physically. Um, you know, so it wasn't just a assured, ecstatic, beatific state. Uh, it could be quite taxing. So, so with that in mind... Um you can have a bad experience on this. Is there any real therapeutic use? Because uh, in therapy, the last, last thing you want to do is, is drive somebody further into a dark place. I mean, the, uh, the whole purpose of therapy is to get them to a, a brighter, a lighter place. Uh, and, and it seems like you're never sure what you're going to get. And so is there a, uh, a real therapeutic use for DMT? Yeah. Um, well, there's two uh, important issues there. You, you know, one of them is, um, you know, the whole uh, you know notion of you know psychotherapy, and uh, you know if you're going to be, you know, uh, successful, um, you know, doing psychotherapy, you need to increase at least usually. Um, you need to increase slightly the amount of anxiety that you know that the patient is feeling um, in order to 
spur them to start you know, challenging themselves right. you know, to look at stuff that they would rather not look at uh, or you know, think about things they would rather not think about. Um, you know, so you want to increase you know, their anxiety, but not too much. Uh, otherwise, they'll just be too anxious and won't be able to attend or they'll get spooked and flee. Um, you know, so uh, you wouldn't you know, necessarily start off if you were doing you know, psychotherapy with you know, DMT. Uh, you might not start off with a you know, full dose. You might start off with a lower dose that just you know, kind of gets the wheels you know, turning in a different way. You know, so that's you know, one issue. Um, you know, there's another issue you know, specific to DMT. Uh, you know, which is it's extremely uh, you know, short duration of action. It only is effective for maybe 15, 20 minutes or so. That's you know, so attractive the, to me. <laughs> right, right. That's why it used to be called, you know, the businessman's trip. Um, you know, but, you know, there are um, a couple of, you know, groups overseas, that, you know, that are developing a continuous infusion model of DMT. You know, so you could keep, you know, somebody in that state you know, for an hour, or, you know, two or three. And uh, you could turn it up, you could turn it down, you know, depending on the content of the material coming up in psychotherapy, you could turn it off and just interact with the patient, um, you know, in a sober state, it wears off so quickly. Uh, And you could do that for a few hours. um, And it might be extremely useful, you know, psychotherapeutically. You know, the other notion, which is a bit more of a mind bender is, you know, the whole you know, field which is, uh, you know, coalescing around the issues of neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. Neuroplasticity is where a compound or an activity increases the complexity and the number of connections between nerve cells. And uh, the other notion is neuro is uh, neurogenesis, um, which you know, points to the growth of, you know, new neurons from stem cells. And uh, the psychedelics you know, seem to induce, you know, both uh, neuroplasticity and uh, neurogenesis. And uh, ketamine also does as well. And your know, ketamine is a uh, you know, psychedelic in a way, and it's an antidepressant. Uh, and you may not really need you know to attain to any you know, particular subjective experience with. Um, you know, ketamine in order to still you know, see an antidepressant response. You know, so, you know, people are starting to think, you know, do you need to experience anything subjectively in order for these, you know, drugs to work uh, in you know, terms of antidepressant effect? You know, is it all going on behind the scenes? Is it just the stimulation of neurogenesis and of neuroplasticity? You know, so the psychedelics also do that. Um, and in the same uh, you know, time course, uh, um, you know, like ketamine, you know, so you know, there is a you know, move to develop non-psychedelic psychedelics, uh, which stimulate the same parts of the brain and stimulate, you know, neuro and you know, stimulate, uh, uh, you know, the plasticity and the stem cell effects without any subjective effects. You know, so it's a strange thing. You know, some you know, people are saying, oh, you need the subjective experience if you're going to you know, be getting any healing. And others are saying, no, that's not necessary. It just occurs behind the scenes with, you know, sprouting you know, neurons you know, that you're not aware of um, until after the fact. 
Right. Well, part of this, uh, I, I have to think that you were pretty brave in, in going down this route and even suggesting that uh, there might be a spirit mod, uh, molecule. And I know, you know, you're not the first person in the history of mankind to uh, kind of um, come up with that idea. But being a medical doctor and a, and a professor and, a, you know, um, was there any kind of um just the ambivalence about you know what what your colleagues might because I talk to a lot of people on here uh who talk about consciousness talk about um spirituality all the time but most of them aren't rooted in science and have nothing no nothing to lose by going down that path we, we and so when you were first starting in this was that a concern for you to to even broach this subject yeah, yeah, it was uh, you know quite a concern, and I, you know, kept the spirituality aspect completely to myself. I never really talked about it with my colleagues, with my, uh, you know, regulators, with the you know people you know funding my studies. It was all strict you know psychopharmacology, um, you know, dose response work, endocrine results, you know, cardiovascular effects, those kinds of things. Um, Yes, you know, so I really stayed clear of both spirituality and you know psychotherapy, uh, you know, because a lot of the you know reasons, or you know, one of the reasons anyway, th th these kinds of um, studies ended in the early nineteen you know seventies is you know because of the spiritual flavor that was being uh, you know kind of you know permeating. Um, you know, the psychotherapy research, like it, it was, you know, mystical experiences, you know, right. which were, you know, curing depression or OCD or end of life care, as opposed to, you know, psychopharmacological effects. Um, and, um, you, you know, regulators back then, especially, you know, back then, uh, you know, were not, you know, keen on, you know, mixing, uh, uh, you know, categories, you know, like yeah. this, you know, it's either you know, psychotherapeutic or it's uh, spiritual. And, uh, you know, um, I learned my lesson or, uh, uh, you know, um, I learned you know, the lesson, you know, that the first you know, generation of you know, scientists, uh, you know, researchers learned is to just, you know, keep it you know, psychopharmacological. You know, so it you know, wasn't um, until I stopped my studies and you know, began, you know, looking at, you know, the... Um, you know, the largest, you know, broadest, you know, container, uh, you know, to understand the experiences in, uh, you know, that I started to speak more uh, openly um, about, you know, my interest in the spiritual aspects of these uh, compounds. Right. When we talk to people who are come from those fringes on this program, and I, I, don't, I don't even really know if I if that's disrespectful to say those fringes, people who have different belief systems than uh, mainstream religion about um, what what the experience is. They t the word that always comes up is consciousness, and it comes up in your books too. And but I, in 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 terms of um the separation of consciousness from the body and i'm still trying to nail down exactly what consciousness is even yeah. though we use the word so much can you help me out with that at all uh probably you know not too much uh 
Well, you know, consciousness, I suppose it's, you know, like pornography, right? Uh, you can't define it, but you know it when you see it. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, um, time displacement stuff, I, I understand. But it, it's still when we're talking about what consciousness is. It, I mean, because it feels like a scientific way of saying spirit without saying spirit. Well, yeah, it, it you know, it is pretty complicated. Well, well, you know, when you're a um, you know, medical student uh, and you're going on rounds, uh, you know, they speak about consciousness. Uh, you know, what is the state of consciousness of uh, um, of your um, of your patient? Um, is it stable and alert? Is it drowsy? Is it confused? Um, is it asleep? Is it in coma, responsive or not? You know, so it's uh, a you know medical expression. I'm at least in you know within the medical uh, you know context. You know, a, um, you know, I'm a, a spectrum of alertness to uh, you know coma and stability. Um, is it a stable level of consciousness or is it you know, fluctuating? Um, are you I'm alert for a few minutes and then you get drowsy or fall asleep. You become alert again. You know, consciousness within you know, psychology uh, more partakes of awareness, attention, um, those kinds of things. Right. And, uh, and you know, uh, in spiritual circles, um, it you know, can I'm assume, um, you know you know, more uh, abstract, you know, kinds of properties like, you know, being elevated or being, you know, uh, you know dense, those kinds of expressions. Uh, you know, spiritual is a, you know, complex term too. And, right. uh, <laughs> you know, I usually like to call it, uh, you know, feelings or thoughts or behaviors or, you know, perceptions which you know, partake of the elevated, the non-ordinary, the special, the unique, the you know, the memorable, the more real than real. Um, you know, so you have to be conscious in order to have a spiritual experience. You know, so you know that uh, you know plays in in into the definition as well. Right, and part of part of this whole idea about separating consciousness from the body, um, it, it it's confusing because I'm thinking of. Oh, the the psychoactive effect of DMT seems to be opening up the pineal gland. I'm guessing to experience something that is external, not internal. That's the part that that confuses me. Because, uh, and if I can, like a really short story. And again, for the people on YouTube who, who monitor me, I'm not glorifying drug use. In the early '70s, mid '70s, I did LSD. Uh, at a Carlos Santana concert, and I was brought up in a supposedly Catholic, New York Catholic uh, uh, upbringing, but what that really means is you don't have religion, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about faith. It, you, it's just a tag we put on you. You're not going to go to church, you're not going to read any Bible, you're not going to do any of that stuff, and don't talk about it with your friends because they'll just, you know, they'll tune you out. So I, we were at a, a Carlos Santana concert with a girl who was in Catholic school, but still not religious. <laughs> and we both had the same experience of 
telepathic communication on LSD. What we what we we are sure that we were having a conversation. And both of us felt felt like we were having the same conversation, not like uh, I think you're saying one thing, one thing, and we and after we said, yeah, that was great. We actually uh, could recount our conversation that we had without speaking a word. And so I, there's this idea of is it out there or is it an internal experience? Is the drug doing something to our brain to make us believe uh, something is happening externally? Or is it really an external experience and it's just opening up a pathway? Did you gain any uh, you know, definitive belief about what, what's really happening? Is it an internal experience or is there really something out there that we are tapping into? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well. That's an important question. Um, and uh, well, you know. But before we, you know, we, you know, go there, let me, you know, clarify or, uh, you know, shed some light on, you know, the notion of, you know, consciousness, uh, you know, leaving the body. Uh, in my volunteers, you know, I think, uh, you know, a you know, more precise uh, description of what took place is that people lost awareness of their body. You know, they were no longer aware of their bodies. Uh, you know, like with ketamine as well, you're unaware of your body. It just So I, that's different. I don't mean to interrupt, but that's different from the NDD, NDE uh, experience where they believe they're up above their body and can look down and see it. So they're conscious of their body. Right. Yeah, there was no one with, you know, that kind of experience in our group, you know, that, you know, they could view their bodies you know, from a distance or they, you know, traveled, uh, you know, like, you know, downtown Albuquerque to look around. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, you know, so is the, you know, content of the experience uh, in your mind or, is, or are you just able, you know, to perceive things which are outside of your mind? you know, because of the alteration in your brain chemistry. Yeah, and we just don't know. I mean, that's really I'm impossible to say. Um, you know, your experience of, you know, telepathy, uh, yeah, you know, that would, you know, point, you know, uh, you know to a you know, model that proposes that you're perceiving things which aren't, you know, generated within you, you're just, you know, perceiving rather than, you know, generating it, you know, so, you know, that would be consistent, you know, with an external, you know, world that you're now able to tap into, uh, you know, the other model is, you know, the, you know, neurotheology model, you know, which is, you know, you know, this is your brain on drugs, you know, there are certain parts of your brain being, you know, dinged by the drug, and you're know, generating, um, you know, the impression of, you know, reading your friend's, uh, you know, mind at the time. Right. And and so, and part of the, the thing that confu that further complicates that is we, since both of us were taught never to really, or, or conditioned never to really talk about things spiritual, that the conversation about it didn't happen for 10 years after. So <laughs> uh, we were both kind of remembering the experience of, of what it what it was because she ba I basically heard her tell me uh, we we need to be up front in the front row. Can I get on your shoulders? And I just lifted her up on my shoulders and ran to the front row. Uh, <laughs> and we both remembered it that way. But ten years can be a long time. And so the question really is: Do the people on DMT and and I guess it would only happen on low doses where you don't have that experience of losing losing connection to your body uh have any of those telepathic kind of 
uh, you know, experiences that that part where I feel like I can communicate without speaking. Um, well, we only gave, you know, DMT to one person at a time. Uh, you know, so, you know, there was never, uh, you know, a you know, case, you know, for people you know, to be in that same stone space and interacting in that space, uh, you know, with their minds only. Um, you know, the closest thing might be one of our volunteers was, you know, sometimes asked to do uh, you know, psychic work, uh, you know, for the police, you know, to locate you know, missing people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so she was hoping on her DMT experiences, you know, to be able to you know, make contact with those missing people. And it didn't occur. So okay. you know, that's an <laughs> end of one. And it was a, you know, didn't work out. Big letdown for the people who want to believe in in the, the uh, psychic uh, experience right there, <laughs> and I'm sure most of, any of them who are listening to that were waiting for you to say, and it did enhance her ability to find missing people. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Sorry. Uh, we are kind of short on time here, and I wish I had you for three hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. I want to uh, talk about the the book, uh, the other book, not the Spirit Malku uh, book, the uh, Joseph Levy, if I'm pronouncing that right, Levy, mm-hmm. uh, Escapes Death. Yeah, it's difficult for me. I'm, I'm just conditioned for 60 years to be saying Levy. Um, it, it, is, it, it seems autobiogra- autobiographical. It seems like it's it's definitely you. Uh, if so, if I'm writing that, why even bother with the pseudonym? <laughs> right, right. Um, well, the well, you know, pronouncing you know the last name Levy is you know based on you know the spelling in the Bible. You know, the Hebrew spelling is uh, um is Levi, uh, which would be uh, you know you know that would be hard. You know, you know, but I uh, you know wanted to you know, retain the vowelization anyway you know, right um well it's completely autobiographical um but uh yeah it it you know describes um uh you know bad you know tooth procedure that just you know kind of you know took me down you know so many you know hellish rabbit holes uh i swore if i ever survived i would write about it um, because it was just impossible to, you know, make this stuff up. So, uh, yeah, you know, what I tell people is everything which occurred to the protagonist occurred to me, and every, you know, thought that passed through his mind, you know, passed, uh, you know, through mine as well. But still, it's a snapshot. It's a, you know, it's a you know, facet of my personality as opposed to me. Right. Well, you know, Philip Roth always used to be asked, you know, what's the difference, in, you know, between you and Alexander Portnoy? And he'd say, I'm not Alexander Portnoy. You know, so um, it's, you know, the same thing. You know, I am not Joseph Levy, but still, I couldn't have written, you know, that book without you know, being me. You know, why did I, you know, disguise things and uh, names and places? Well, you know, with respect, you know, to the places, I don't, you know, paint the healthcare where I live in a very good light. And no, uh, if, I wanted to talk about that, but yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah. And I was concerned if I said, Oh, it's, you know, my hometown and this is the name of the hospital. And if I ever needed to go to that hospital again, <laughs> they'd say, Oh, you're the guy that just completely, 
you know, trashed us. We're not going to look after you. You know, it's you know difficult to imagine they could have offered worse care, you know, than they did otherwise. But still, uh, you know, they just you know, might refuse to see me. Um, the other is, you know, that uh, you know, there's you know some personal stuff, uh, friends, you know, family, women. Uh, it's an uncomfortable read, uh, and some of the things I wish you would have kind of um, disguised a little bit. Some, of, I mean, for the non-medical people, uh, uh, people who might be a little bit um, squeamish, squeamish, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, some of the things in there are a little bit too detailed and too real for for, for a guy like me. And I I worked in pathology and did autopsies for uh, many years, and so you would think, <laughs> but your book definitely got me. Um, wow. <laughs> some of those things but um the idea of uh your situation there i had a, a a friend who when i started to read the book and i'm like this is andy's story he started with his tooth the same way the bad crown ended up going through all the things that you went through so you're not alone in that um uh, but on the healthcare thing a couple of weeks ago i had lee tomlinson on who was a former uh, uh corporate guy in in television and all this stuff very successful guy who uh, went through a lot of not quite uh, joseph Levy's um struggles with the healthcare system but some struggles with the healthcare system and he came out and wrote a book about the lack of empathy uh, and he used that word uh, probably a thousand times in his book about the lack of empathy in the healthcare system when i read your book it felt it felt like i was talking to him all over again about uh, this chronic state of people, uh, people get doctors, and I don't have to tell you, doctors and nurses get into the, the field because they want to be helpful, they want to help people, they want to, you know, be heroes. And then at some point along the line, it seems like a lot of them, whether it's because overwork, stress, the system that they're in, seems to beat the empathy out of them. Your, your take on that. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. And if there is one thing, well, there was incompetence, like there was, you know, gross incompetence, which was you know, difficult you know, for me as an academic physician, you know, to countenance. And I wasn't very you know, subtle about, you know, my suggestions for them, you know, kind of increasing their game, you know, upping their game, you know, but, you know, the empathy was, uh, yeah, it was you know, really lacking. Um, and, uh, you know, the nurses, you know, the radiology, well, well, the radiology, uh, you know, department was great. You know, they were kind, supportive, walked me through everything. I was cold. They put a blanket on me, stuff like that, you know, but everybody else was just out to lunch. You know, they forgot about me when I was getting a you know, respiratory th you know, therapy you know, treatment. You know, they just, you know, left me, you know, they just left, you know, the machine in there. <laughs> right. And it's going and going and going, and there's no more medication in there. It's going and going. So I just unplugged it. Yeah. And, you know, like half a day later, they say, oh, we never picked this up, did we? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it, you know, if you uh, you know, see enough you know, difficult patients, uh, if you, uh, you know, fail in your duties or your responsibilities, your your own expectations you know, for helping people, uh, you know, you, you, you begin to realize it's only a job as opposed, you know, to you know, making your life worthwhile, um, all kinds of things like that. Um, <clears throat> you start burning out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I stopped, you know, practice, you know, my own, you know, uh, you know psychiatry, uh, you know, practice, you know, when I started burning out and I lost empathy, 
you know, like I had been, you know, working with, you know, psychiatric patients, you know, for 30 years. Um, you know, but, you know, one thing I was smart around was never working full time seeing patients. I only worked, you know, three, four days a week. Uh, otherwise, you just get overwhelmed. You just have too many people's problems in your mind. You know, right. so I always, you know, had other things going on. I was living in, you know, beautiful, uh, you know, places that I could, you know, drive around, you know, hike around, you know, but after a certain point, I, I was at a clinic between Santa Fe and uh, uh, you know, a small town called es Española. And uh, it was the most hardcore group of you know, patients I'd ever had, you know, murderers, uh, just a lot of murderers, actually, and <laughs> unbelievable amounts of, you know, drug abuse and domestic violence and intergenerational abuse. It was just nuts. And uh, after, you know, two years of that, I said, I don't really want to hear about these things anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I can understand I, that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, you know, my contract was up. I said, I'm taking a break. And that, you know, break has become, you know, 13 years now. So I think it's really important for medical professionals to read your book. I do. Uh, but the question I have for you is, and I, I don't know if you can really answer this because uh, you seem healthy now and probably haven't. Uh, First of all, the book is just so frustrating. You just feel like, my God, is it, does this ever, and I, I imagine you going through it probably said that a thousand times. Is this ever going to end? Um, uh, the, the torture you seem to, personal physical torture you seem to be enduring. Uh, but uh, do you have any sense that the medical uh, profession, the medical industry, how we care for people, has it improved since that time or, or not? Well, I think, you know, small town, you know, healthcare, you know, generally, I mean, it's a burnout. Uh, you know, I live in a small town. Well, you, well, you know, like, you know, certain small towns, you know, like Upper Crest, you know, retirement small towns like Taos, you know, for example, you know, it's a very small town with, you know, great physicians and a great hospital, you know, you know but that is the exception. Um, and you know, like I, I, uh, you know, live, you know, near the, uh, well, you know, uh, well, 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 so I live, you know, near that, you know, the Navajo reservation, uh, and it's impoverished, and it's, you know, really hard, you know, to attract you know, physicians out here, uh, you know, nurses and whatnot. Yeah, you know, so the healthcare is pretty poor in small towns, especially if they're extractive industry, uh, you know, kind of towns, you know, non-university kind of towns, you know, without, the you know, kinds of things which um, appeal, you know, to, you know, well-educated people, um, you know, and I think, you know, health insurance is just grim. You have to spend all your time, you know, begging for, uh, you know, treatments or prescriptions to be filled and those kinds of things. Yeah. I don't think it's getting any better. Um, that, that's a shame. And, and something, uh, you know, we talk a lot about health care in this country, but it's not just the the insurance and, and how we're going to pay for it that matters. I think uh, the approach to burning out doctors and nurses uh, to the point where they they are not angels anymore. They are just, you know, overworked, angry people like the rest of us is the, probably the worst thing we could do for the country in terms of health care. And I think that needs to be addressed as much as the financial part of it and how we pay for all of it. You agree? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, you know, the whole uh, you know, concept of electronic medical records has been a really mixed you know, blessing. You can get your hands on, 
you know, medical records, you know, much easier now, you know, but at the same time, the amount of time you need to spend entering and checking, you know, boxes and all that on your computer after you've you know, done, you know, seeing a patient, it's, it's just really hard to do. Um, you know, if you're a large clinic with a lot of staff, you can hire, you know, somebody, you know, to take transcription and, you know, they can enter all that stuff in the computer, you know, but if you're a you know, solo practitioner, or it's a you know, poor community, you're stuck, you know, bringing you know, home an enormous amount of work, you know, much more than was the case you know, before no, the institution. No doubt about it. My wife uh, is a nurse and uh, her normal working hours are 40 hours a week, but the report work that she has to do uh, is another 40 hours a week. She, she spends equal time uh, after she's all done with her uh, doing her treatments and stuff with the reports. And, and so I, I feel that I hear it. And, and I think that's something that needs to be addressed. I want to be respectful of your time. I know uh, you're a very busy man and very uh, wanted on, on a lot for a lot of reasons, not wanted in the, the way that guy in poster is wanted. <laughs> uh, but I do appreciate your time here. Uh, just uh, finally on the DMT thing. Um, do you feel like uh, you've you've come to any like real um, real enlightenment through your own uh, experimentation about what uh, what's really going on? Or do, you know, that, I know that's a loaded question. Like, but I, I'm I'm so curious. This is why I want to do DMT, and I just want to do it once just to see what that experience is. Uh, did did you uh, do you have any? feeling like that you've been enlightened beyond what I know right now from interviewing people? Uh, no, not really. Uh, well, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, a study came out you know, from the University of Michigan, you know, demonstrating, you know, concentrations of DMT in the mammal brain, which are as high as you know, serotonin, for example which then you know points to the possibility of a DMT neurotransmitter system and you've got to wonder you know what you know that might be doing in the brain and you know what it's you know, mediating and you know the hallmark of a DMT experience is it's more real than real you know so it's you know tempting to speculate that the role of a putative DMT neurotransmitter system is to you know, mediate our ongoing sense of reality you know, which is a very strange thought because you, you know, then you need to wonder what's you know regulating the substance that's regulating our feeling of reality. Right. Yeah, so that's where it gets you know, pretty spooky. Um, so. <laughs> it does. It's uh, you know, wow. So well, I think the 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 big conclusion here with with today's uh, it is really a big chicken and egg discussion going around in circles about. And I don't think it's ever going to end. And so I feel like humanity is never going to get any closer. It's like you'll know when you die what ha what what happens after this, or what goes on beyond this. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, you know, contemplating or wondering about what occurs after you die is kind of moot. Uh, you know, it isn't all that important in a way. I, you know, you've got no control over it. You know, nobody really knows what it's like. Uh, you know, so, you know, that's, you know, where the importance of, you know, living your life as best as you can, 
I get it. Yeah, and I, I, but that fear of the unknown is what drives our curiosity, and that, that's why I think we all want to know. I do appreciate your time here, and I'm going to let you go. But uh, I do want to say I, I, I will be continuing to uh, suggest the books and promote the books, and I wish you great success. And uh, uh, and listen, if you ever uh, have anything like, or if you come across any uh, big epiphanies that you would love to share with me, I would love to hear them. Uh, sure, <laughs> sure. I'm so curious about this stuff. Thank you for coming. Have a great day. Well, thanks, Matt. Take Bye. care. Dr. Rick Strassman, folks. I uh, wish we had three or four hours with him. I know you do, too. <laughs> um, I feel like we were just scratching the surface there. But the overall conclusion, I think, for me is uh, some things are unknowable. Uh, as much as we want to know them, I still, uh, you know, that hasn't deterred me from really wanting to uh, have that one short 15-minute experience with DMT. Uh, again, for the YouTube folks, I'm not glorifying the experience. I'm not recommending anybody else do it. Uh, I'm not suggesting that people go out and, and look for illegal substances. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a little disappointed that the government does classify it as a, a controlled substance uh, and a drug. But uh, so I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Write to me at info at minddogtv.com, info at minddogtv.com. Please remember to uh, check out Dr. Strassman's books. Uh, one more time, uh, we got this DMT, the spirit mo molecule, and Joseph Levy escapes death, which is, uh, uh, I you know what, that's a real hard uh, a read and frustrating read about and you you should have some empathy before you even open the cover of that book because it's a really uh it's a hellish experience i mean hell on earth he talks about you know we don't worry about uh what's going to happen after you die because uh, it seemed to me he went to hell and in back in this lifetime on in, during this life and that's my takeaway from that book that's my great book but uh not to be read um on a cold heart yeah, because he does go through some, and it is extremely frustrating. You just like you, you just wanted to be suffering to end. It's a great book. So anyway, that's our program for today. Tonight, I have Joseph Zarek with me, who has written a book called "The Devil Pulls the Strings" and includes things with spirituality and time travel and all this kind of stuff. And uh, should be an interesting uh, way to end this very strange week with psychics, palm readers. DMT discussion, uh, a scientist who was doing studies on Gen Z. It's been a very uh, full week of very wide subjects. Glad, to, glad you can make it. Thanks for coming. Until uh, tonight, I'm Matt Napa for the Mind Off TV podcast. Thanks for coming. Glad to have
to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.